it's February 15th, 2019. And this is episode 388 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by fellow early adopters and longtime friends of the show at EasyDNS.com. When you need website hosting, domain management, email provisioning, or more, think EasyDNS.com. And for new customers, use coupon code LTB half off. That's one word, LTB half off, to save 50% on your first purchase. Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm Adam B. Levine, and today I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Thanks to all the hosts and all of you listeners for taking the time to join us on this episode. Today, we're going to be talking about more questions from listeners entering to win one of our Bitcoin clocks. If you'd like to enter, send a question to adam at letstalkbitcoin.com with the subject Bitcoin clock. And if you hear your question on the show, then you'll be entered to win. So we got a compound question from listener Kirk asking us about OFAC. And even before we even talk about the question, let's just talk about OFAC. What is OFAC and what does it generally do? OFAC is the Office of Foreign Asset Control. And (laughs) they control foreign assets (laughs) or attempt to. I don't really know what they do. They're departments of the Treasury, and they're responsible for implementing sanctions on financial services and named individuals. Most of us have know and have heard of the no-fly list. Mm-hmm. Well, OFAC maintains the no-pay list. Yeah. The no-pay list is basically a list of individuals. They're basically identified entities, individuals and companies that U.S. citizens and corporate entities are forbidden from transacting with, meaning they, we are forbidden from sending payments to these people or companies or receiving payments from these people or companies. But the burden is entirely on U.S. individuals to check against the OFAC list. Now, most of us don't ever come into contact with this because if you make payments through your bank, your bank will do this for you. Meaning if you try to write a check or send a wire to a person, they automatically check the name against the OFAC list. If you've ever sent a wire and received a message back from your bank and they say, we need more information on the recipient, it's usually because there was a partial hit on the OFAC list. But if you do payments through cryptocurrencies, this becomes a bit of an issue because if you receive or send payments to individuals you don't know, It is your obligation legally as a U.S. citizen to check their names against the OFAC list, which becomes quite a heavy burden. So those of us who do have to receive and send payments to people from other countries, for example, web developers in the Philippines, um, we have to check their names against the OFAC list. So it's financial sanctions, right? It's the ability or it's uh, the control mechanism or the U.S., which controls pretty much most of the global financial rails that you know we currently use, to say that these people are outside of acceptable, right? We had a shoemaker approach us who is uh, who lived and was based in Iran, and we actually, um, you know, at LTB headquarters, uh, called up the State Department and tried to figure out if we could actually legally take them as a sponsor, and we weren't allowed to, not because they were specifically on the list, but because basically all of Iran is is on the list or was on the list at the time. Right. 
I believe that violating sanctions, if you don't fulfill the, the duty that's required of checking the OFAC list and you violate sanctions, that's a felony. I think it's a criminal offense. I'm pretty sure. Is there some kind of limit on the amount of the transaction? Like if you're sending $2 to a web nope. developer? No, you have to check it for everything. Okay. Yeah, they're basically locked out of the financial system is the goal of this type of action. Yes. And then this is probably all outlined in some kind of congressional regulation that has a name like, don't worry, we're still a free country. <laughs> right. Indeed. Okay. So, okay. So we understand what OFAC is. We understand at least in basic terms what they do. So OFAC has come into the world of cryptocurrency because recently a couple of Bitcoin addresses went onto the OFAC list. And so for the first time, we have this requirement, at least legally speaking, to check to make sure that when you're sending Bitcoin, you're not sending it to one of these addresses or probably more complicated, sending it to one of these individuals regardless of their address. So here we actually start getting to, uh, to Kirk's questions. What, what would it actually look like to see something like this happen, right? What, what does an OFAC action against an address look like? Is it just throwing a note into the ether and expecting people to you know, to abide by it? Or are there mechanisms that have to come into place in order to do this? How, how would something like this work in crypto? Well, I think the burden probably falls on the individual who's paying, right? Or the financial institution that the transaction is going through, just like with fiat transactions. Well, there's specific information on that. So let's see what OFAC says. As a general matter, U.S. persons and persons otherwise subjected to OFAC jurisdiction, including firms that facilitate or engage in online commerce or process transactions using digital currency, are responsible for ensuring that they do not engage in unauthorized transactions prohibited by OFAC sanctions, such as dealings with blocked persons or property or engaging in prohibited trade investment-related transactions. Prohibited transactions include transactions that evade or avoid, have the purpose of evading or avoiding, cause violation of, attempt to violate prohibitions imposed by OFAC under various sanctions of authorities, additionally persons that provide financial material, technological support for and to or as a may be designated in OFAC under the relevant sanctions authority. And remember, we are still a free country. Right. So the burden is on you or the financial institution that you're going through. And so any financial institution that's subject to this is going to be overly cautious, right? And they're probably going to end up censoring a lot of transactions that are not necessarily going to even violate it, but just for the cost of easy compliance with this, it's going to have a chilling effect on a lot of transactions, which is why I'm guessing that companies like PayPal just block all payments to certain countries. But here's the problem. This relates to specific identifiers. So what OFAC did, which was different, is they added specific Bitcoin addresses to the list. Now, the list can be accessed through a search engine, right? In fact, they've added Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Neo, Dash, Ripple, IOTA, Monero, and Petro addresses. Because part of this is the sanctions imposed on Venezuela under the executive orders for that. And the problem is that it's not currently possible to query those addresses through the OFAC search engine. So OFAC has a search engine, and the search engine, you can put in names. Uh, you can go to treasury.gov and play around with it. It's actually quite funny. So if you want to find a hit, for example, just type in Pablo Escobar or Pablo anything for that matter. You know, Pablo is only the fourth most popular name throughout South America, but Pablo Anything will get you a 70% accuracy hit um, <laughs> on at least one named person. So then it gives you, a, you can give it a probability threshold and it will give you 
results. And then based on those results, you have to determine if the person, if you have sufficient information in order to distinguish between the person listed on that list and the person you're transacting with. It's a ridiculous standard. And to make it even more ridiculous, you can't use that search engine to search for addresses. So you can use the search engine to search for individuals, but you can't use it to search for addresses. And the addresses, as far as we're concerned, are pretty much the only thing that in a standard Bitcoin transaction could be identified, because obviously there are no names going along with a standard transaction. Yes, this is pure speculation. I think part of the reason OFAC added addresses to the list is because they want to test the, the waters, right? Because what this does is it creates a burden that's vague enough that this is going to result in at some point, some kind of prosecution, investigation, etc. And at that point, they can test this legally because whoever this is being imposed on is probably going to sue them for producing something that is overbearing, overly vague, uh, unconstitutionally so. And then the court is going to narrow the application and scope and make certain requests and requirements from the government back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then they've got a legal basis for this. What is the recourse that someone has if they're added to this list kind of by accident or if they believe that they're innocent or they should not be on there? Is it like the no-fly list where it's really difficult to get taken off? Yep, it's exactly like that. It's one of those due process black holes where um, you have been deemed to be on the no-pay list, and then you have to remove it. In fact, this happened with the first set of Bitcoin addresses posted there. One of the people said, hey, hang on, that's my address, and is now suing Treasury, I believe, or at least appealing to Treasury to say, you've made a mistake. I'm not any one of your SDNs, but you just listed my address. So I think even the first batch they did included a false positive. So from a burden perspective, it seems like there are a couple of elements to this in the crypto space. Because anything we're talking about that already, you know, like if you're talking about PayPal or if you're talking about even a company like Coinbase, from a named perspective, they're already doing this, right? People are already being checked. That's why KYC has been, has been happening there. The only thing that's really different here is that now we have this phenomenon being transposed onto addresses themselves. If we're transposing this onto addresses themselves, then really all we're talking about has to be created or added to existing software or products that are out there is the ability for when it's looking at an address to look at that search engine that you're talking about, assuming it works at some point, and to make sure that none of the addresses are actually within that. So, I mean, like, it's inconvenient. Is it actually really bad? Is it actually like it seems like there are a lot more onerous things that happen to companies in this space than that? It always starts very simple and then gets over onerous with expansion and creep. So for instance, Coinbase, the way that Coinbase is good with the regulators is they say, look, we're more draconian with transactions and withdrawals that leave our addresses than Chase or another retail bank. So Coinbase checks multiple hops after you withdraw your money and then retroactively determines if whatever that money does in the future, they're going to impose uh, kicking your account off their, their system. So it's like it's as if you went to a Chase bank, withdrew cash from the ATM, gave it to a friend, and then four or five transactions later, it was a part of something bad, and then Chase decides to close your bank account. It's basically how Coinbase is saying, look, guys, we're the good guys to the regulators. Look how more overly onerous we are. You really want everyone to be on Bitcoin. Yes. So my concern 
would be with these addresses is it's six degrees of separation where it's like how many of these addresses it's is it one hop is it two hops i mean a little while ago we were talking about prism and the way that they spy on americans is they say if you're talking to a foreigner then we can violate the rights of the american because we're really recording the foreigner we're not really recording the american so with these with these addresses how many hops how many interactions can occur before now that's a part of not the direct sanction but the the ability to say that this is now a national security interest to say you don't have this right or that right or this right. So now they can spy on you. Now they can investigate you. Now they can remove all the rights that they did online when it came to information. But now with payments. Hmm. Right. But that could also be an advantage if you kind of turn it around, because when a tool becomes so broad that everybody's addresses are somehow tainted or touching it then the tool essentially becomes useless and it's kind of unenforceable. And then this is actually a strategy that was talked about where some of these payers or these addresses could essentially just, you know, sprinkle Satoshis on every address in the blockchain and then it, like it's all going to be tainted. Well, that's already happening. So the sprinkling is already happening. There, There's another consideration, Adam, you talked about the idea that, oh, so you just build this into the wallets and you check every address before you send. Um, how do you check? Well, the way you check is by taking your destination address and sending it to the search engine and saying, is this a match? Which then told the search engine which address you intended to send to. Mm. Yeah, so that implicates you, right? It, it also tells the search engine what addresses exist <laughs> even before those ex- addresses exist on the blockchain. You know, one of the amazing things about Bitcoin is that you can generate an address without it actually ever existing on the blockchain. Until someone sends you something, it doesn't exist. Well, anywhere. I, have, I have the solution to this. It's quite simple. We just need to put the OFAC uh, registries on a blockchain, <laughs> on the Bitcoin blockchain <laughs> embedded within it. And then all you have to do is query the node. Yes. But then the other problem you have is that as this becomes... Uh, so it, keep in mind, This is not a technological control. And the reason it's not a technological control is because it's so absurd that it couldn't ever possibly work as a technological control. Your average laptop computer can generate billions of Bitcoin addresses per second on a single seed and use any and all of them. So blocking an address is completely useless if you consider that a technological control. Mm If you consider it a political control whose intent is to have a chilling effect on the ability of U.S. citizens to use cryptocurrencies at all, just like the capital gains tax was designed very similarly, then it all makes sense. This has zero effect as a technical control. It has an enormous effect as a political control, because by shifting that burden whereby you have to not only have access to this database, but you have to keep it up to date. And then you have to be able to prove that at the time that you did the transaction and checked the database, that name wasn't there. But, oh, 17 seconds after you did the transaction, that address was added. But how could you possibly know? But look, it's in the computer. Therefore, you should have known. And it it gets impossible to enforce, and it will only be enforced by selective prosecution. So the whole point of this is to create a sledgehammer law that can be smashed on the head of anybody who steps out of line and chill the activity of everybody else. It's fundamentally fascist in nature. 
I also see a worst case scenario where, and it wouldn't even be, it would be someone doing this intentionally to damage and malign Bitcoin. But these public addresses that are knowingly OFAC, what if someone rented a a couple of S9s, ran them, and pointed the block reward to that address and the transaction fees associated with that to that address? You can't discriminate which miner gets the transaction fees and the block reward for the transaction associated with your pending transaction, your unconfirmed uh, transaction. So what if it just became that, you know, one in every 100 transactions in Bitcoin ended up having the transaction fee go to a known OFAC address? Then what would they do to Bitcoin? Like, what would be the argument there? How would that poison, you know, whether or not you knew just by using Bitcoin if your payment fee was going to go to an OFAC violation, what that would do to the business adoption of it. The bottom line here is that all of this is pointing to the traditional institutions of money as a system of control, as a political weapon of surveillance, as a mechanism for law enforcement, as a militarized weapon for geopolitics and trade wars and currency wars with foreign nations. All of the institutions that support the weaponization of commerce for the purposes of the state are coming into direct conflict with cryptocurrencies at every level. And the technological controls are completely unable to stop it, which means that the only thing that's left then is political controls. And this is what these are. We're beginning to see the first steps of backlash against the assertion of cryptocurrencies is that commerce will flow freely on the internet. Let's talk about the taint part and the impact on fungibility here. This isn't going to work from the perspective of actually controlling these individuals because obviously an individual can create as many addresses as they want. So if what, are, what we're thinking here is that as uh, you know, Jonathan said, Coinbase has been doing, they're actually going to be tracking where those spends go and then putting additional controls or taking additional actions against addresses down the line who might have nothing to do with that address upstream, but still have this connection of funds making their way, even if they're just a tiny amount from one to the other. I mean, what do you actually think is going to happen then as a result of these types of of sanctions? Like, what is the the adverse scenario? What's kind of the more midline scenario in your mind? The adverse scenario is that this is a slow creeping, slippery slope criminalization of the use of cryptocurrencies across the board. And what it will do is it will allow only criminals to use cryptocurrencies in the U.S. because everybody else will be afraid of becoming a criminal, whereas criminals are already criminals and therefore not afraid of that particular outcome. It will only be used for selective prosecution, meaning you will never hear about anybody being prosecuted for this because they're doing business unless they piss off the wrong people for the wrong reasons, which means it will be used purely for politically intended prosecutions as most selective prosecution elements are used. And it will be one more sledgehammer in the toolkit of federal government, just like Asset Forfeiture, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and various other things that the government uses to selectively prosecute people who piss them off. Really, the bottom line is that that's the intent, and that's the worst-case scenario on its face. But that's not what's actually going to happen. What's actually going to happen? The government just introduced a toxin into the environment. Every species in that environment is now going to start developing in an evolutionary path that makes it immune to that toxin. 
because it has to. And until now, cryptocurrencies were not particularly incented to evolve towards strong privacy, plausible deniability, and encryption of both sources, destinations, and amounts. Well, guess what? Now they are. The incentives are there. So the more these controls are imposed, the more the balance of evolution leads towards strong privacy. And it's going to accelerate the development of those technologies until the concept of an address itself becomes irrelevant. question comes to us from Faust. He asks, he or she, I can't actually tell, what are the pros and cons of a prolonged cryptocurrency bear market and a bull market? And a related question, how does a boom and bust cycle help or hinder centralized cryptocurrency control in the hands of a few market participants like digital asset funds, exchanges, early investors, etc.? Thanks and continue with the insightful stuff from the LTV podcast. Regards, Faust. You know, following up on our last conversation, you know, I think one of the things that's really nice about kind of the whole bear bull cycle is that it's pushing us in different directions at different time. You know, we were just talking about, uh, you know, the OFAC stuff. We we're talking about the impact that that has on the space. And Andreas, you ended the segment talking about how if we have this clampdown, then we'll have a situation again where only criminals have the kind of risk reward ratio correctly set for them to actually want to use cryptocurrency. And on the one hand, that's not ideal. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you look at when a lot of kind of the fundamental thought and the process that went into Bitcoin came from that period, and it's been the time since we started getting more popular that a lot of those ethos and kind of core things that we believed at the beginning started to go out because it became important. It became like a, a big business opportunity and there was lots of money in it and there were kind of all of these other things. So I think that that, to me, is kind of the most direct relationship here to the uh, bear market and the bull market and kind of that back and forth cycle is that on the one hand, when we're in the bear cycle, we have kind of the core of stuff pushing forward. And then when we're in a bull cycle, we have kind of the hype and the excitement about stuff pushing forward. And there are all, there, you know, there's some of both that happens in each part of that cycle. Yeah, it's the cycle of ideologues uh, versus opportunists in the driving seat. So. When the crypto markets are booming, the opportunists are running the show. Um, they are plowing money into the system. They're plowing money into marketing. They're plowing money into marketing. And the message changes, and it changes noticeably. It changes from the other $6 billion to Lambos. And then the market crashes, and we switch back to the ideologues. And at that point, the message changes again because they're no longer shouting with their golden bullhorn about Lambos and get-rich-quick schemes. So the only people who are left around talking about these things are the people who care about the original ideology or the things that are not driven by price. And so you have that switch. And both, both market cycles have their own values and their own disadvantages, right? You know, I, having the bull markets and having money pouring into the industry 
tends to fund the education of a lot of developers, and that education is not wiped out in the market downturn. That education sticks. Uh, a lot of people who leave the status quo, a lot of people whose uh, minds have been wrenched open by this new reality, they're not going to just go back to what they were doing before. It's changed them fundamentally. So that has an effect. And then, of course, there are cons to the other side, which is, you know, when you're driven purely by ideologues and nobody's investing in anything, it's it's very difficult to to grow and progress. And it's very difficult to, to work in the space because no one's paying you to work in the space. And it's it's hard times. So both sides, I think, have their pros and cons. From my perspective, one of the things that I've experienced is we went from no one caring about how revenue is to be generated, how you're going to make it, or even if you understood what a company you're forming would even do, to now that being sort of like the defining answer that you have to respond to. You know, like the crucible of the market actually paying you for a product in a in a bear market seems to be one of the things that seems to entirely disappear in a in a bull run that I quite enjoy sort of the reappearance to. Also, I, I think that, you know, if this downturn continues to the end of the year, there's going to be substantive layoffs, you know, like the ones that we've seen occurring already, which from my perspective as an entrepreneur is, and it's going to sound bad, but I mean it from my perspective in the market, uh, fantastic. <laughs> because blockchain engineers and people in this space were insanely overpriced last year. In the bull run-up, um, one of the ways you knew this market was absolutely absurd was that there's a, a very prominent lawyer in the space who was assisting projects ICOing, who would charge roughly uh, 1500 an hour. And I was speaking to a lawyer who literally invented the ETF, who's been doing securities law for 30, 40 years, and she charged less than that per hour. So it was really funny to see cryptocurrency become such a high-value niche that people who actually had world-level domain expertise, market rate was less than what they were bringing in. So I think we were long due for a correction. And then for the opportunity to be able to afford the capacity to build in this space, I prefer uh, bear markets because you can now do things with reasonable amounts of money. Because it's really hard to outcompete hype. Mm. Hype suck up, sucks up all the money. And then the cost of producing even substance gets overinflated because you can't afford the engineers because they're chasing the well-funded hype machines. And I actually think that in prolonged uh, bull markets, they suck up the air from the capacity for substantive projects to just be able to do what they want to do. Um, so I, I really think that, you know, the last major prolonged bear market, uh, what came out of that was Ethereum. And I think that likewise, we're going to see some very substantive and material redefining things coming out of this bear market. And, and um, not because, you know, it just so happened to be at the same time, but I think it's directly because when all the money gets sucked out from the people selling you promises and paper, it can't go to substantive projects. And that's sort of what I like bear markets is keep your burn rate low and then you, you sort of shine when everyone else is collapsing. The person who uh, or the company that I know that actually did the best out of the bull market, out of all of the different projects I looked at, including all the ICOs, was actually an ICO marketing company. <laughs> <laughs> that wound up making just a, such a ridiculous amount of money because they were able to, in, in that buyer's market, charge just a ton of money. So yeah, again, it's it's classic gold rush behavior, right? Picks and shovels, selling that is the way to go. Yeah, well, that really says something. <laughs> Advisory work. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about the pros and cons of 
people in bear markets in terms of onboarding new users and sort of outreach and curiosity about cryptocurrency. And I think that in a bear market, if you can get people to pay attention, it can be a really great time to do outreach because they can come on board with services when those services are not completely overloaded with new users and new customers and trying like mad to keep up and really not being able to. So the challenge is, you know, capturing people's interest because when the buzz about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency kind of dies down, there's a lot of people who may have been curious, but they're kind of like, you know, fair weather friends, right? They're, they're only really interested if there's like a lot of buzz going around and they hear about it continuously. But if you can get someone interested in a time of the price downturn, it can be a really great time to introduce them to new services and ways that they can use cryptocurrency in a relaxed kind of way. Also, similarly, I mean, the, the big pro <laughs> is that you can buy and you can accumulate cryptocurrency because if you believe in the technology long term, then this just means that basically Bitcoin is on sale <laughs> and all other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, it's a big question about the cycle, right? Human psychology means that we want to buy things when they're going up in price and tend to be more expensive and we don't want to buy them or we want to sell them when they're going down in price, you know, in order to preserve wealth. That's kind of a natural thing. But what you do get from these uh, bear markets is you get people self-selecting where in a bull market, it's really easy to get excited because there's so excited. There's so much excitement. But in kind of the quieter or the down market, like the only reason why people are here is because they're actually interested in other things than besides, you know, the fact that they think that the price is going to appreciate immediately. Maybe they're even just speculating, you know, a year or two out. But that's a big difference. Yeah, there's all these people that were saying when, you know, Bitcoin was $20,000 a coin or something. They're like, oh, I should have bought Bitcoin. OK, well, now's your chance, right? <laughs> it's on sale. <laughs> Go get it. But who is actually going to take that advice is it remains to be seen. I'd like to give the opposite advice, and it's so rewarding. When the price passed 6000 on the way up last, uh, you know, a uh, year before last, uh, in the big run-up, I started saying the B word, not Bitcoin, but bubble. And the result was I was featured on a webcast wearing a Darth Vader mask <laughs> with the headline, Andreas has gone over to the dark side, because I dared say that this was now a bubble. You know, no thanks coming my way for that one. But I felt that it was important. If you're going to turn around and tell people when the price is low, don't worry, it's coming back or I'm buying and accumulating or whatever. Uh, I think it's more important even when it's climbing at a thousand bucks a week or a thousand bucks a month to say, OK, this is an unnatural rate of growth. Don't expect it to continue doing this. You know, that not going to happen. So bubble. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin was brought to you by fellow early adopters and longtime friends of the show at EasyDNS.com. When you need website hosting, domain management, email provisioning, or more, think EasyDNS.com. Oh, and use coupon code LTB half off if it's your first time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats. For those of you still listening, I've been thinking about putting together a PC gaming social group. If you'd be interested in something like that, or have any other questions or comments, 
send an email to adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see you next time.